This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. Violent ends. Violent ends. And we're back. I'm Jen Carpenter. Welcome to the home stretch of season five of Violent Ends. Did you miss me? I missed you guys. But let me tell you, taking the month of August off is a necessity because the planning of a festival of oddities has become pure insanity, just absolute chaos. Did you come this year? Did you have fun? Honestly, I was a little nervous about doing a two-day festival and kind of just anxious in general after the nightmare we went through with our special celebrity guest last year. But even though it was hotter than Satan's butthole this year, this was kind of my favorite year yet. I think we're finally getting the perfect layout down, which is huge. I'm still so mad about it being 90 fucking degrees out all weekend, though. Know what else I'm mad about? That nobody thought I needed to know about this weird piece of Michigan history, Lansing history at that, that we're going to talk about today. If I were to ask you if you know about the Morlock quads, what would you say? My response when asked that very question a few weeks ago was, where's that? <laughs> it sounds like a place, right? It, uh, it's not. So buckle up, buttercups, because you're in for a wild ride. Today's twisted tale begins with the good old-fashioned 1920s love story. Sadie Lyon was born in 1899 in rural Ohio. The eldest of seven children born into a poor farming family, Sadie did not have it easy growing up. Her father was an abusive alcoholic. Her mother was largely absent from the day-to-day, leaving much of the mothering to Sadie, who was only older than her siblings by a few years. So when the opportunity arose for Sadie to go live with her maternal grandparents in a village several miles away, she took it and she never looked back. Her father, the control freak, didn't take this change well, and he followed Sadie to her grandparents' house with a shotgun. There, he stood on the porch and hollered and threatened, but Sadie's grandmother was having none of it, and she refused to allow him to take her granddaughter away. Mr. Lyon disowned Sadie right then and there, but Sadie didn't even care. She had freedom at her grandparents' house. She had friends. From there, she could build a life. Her own life, not just one raising her brood of younger siblings and tending to her father's every whim. After high school, Sadie tried her hand at a few different professions until she found what she believed was her calling. She worked as a telephone operator and then a waitress before getting a job as a doctor's assistant. This was when she fell in love with the idea of becoming a nurse. Try as she might, though, Sadie couldn't pass Latin or chemistry in nursing school, both requirements for a degree. Why Latin? Why Latin? So a life as a nurse was not to be, but Sadie continued to work in the medical field. 
after a whirlwind love affair with her employer's nephew, who was also a doctor, a heartbroken Sadie moved to Michigan to start life anew when that relationship ended. She got a job as an assistant to a Dr. Labarge. It was in that role that Sadie met the man who would change her life. Carl Morlock was 11 years Sadie's senior. Born in Germany to an abusive, alcoholic father and a shockingly overbearing mother, Carl, like Sadie, came from a large family. But unlike Sadie, who was the eldest of seven, Carl was the youngest of nine. The Morlocks emigrated to the U.S. when Carl was three, so around 1891, and settled in Michigan. Here's a little rabbit hole for you. The Morlocks settled in an unnamed Michigan community that was exclusively occupied by German immigrants, where the residents only spoke, taught, and preached in German, and everybody was a devout evangelical Lutheran. If you follow me on TikTok, you know that I recently went to a place that checks all of those boxes. You might have heard of it. It's called Frankenmuth. And what true crime family of incestuous evangelical Lutheran German immigrants came from Frankenmuth? The List family, as in John List. As in, if you don't know who I'm talking about, go look it up because I don't have time for John List's bullshit today. But the possibility, nay, likelihood, that the Morlocks and List's are either related or at the very least kind of came from the same start, that is that is wild to me. Like, wild with a capital W-I-L-D. Anyway, back to the main event here. Carl and Sadie met when he was admitted to the hospital she worked at for an appendectomy. For some reason, the other girls working on the ward were smitten with Carl, even though he was neither particularly handsome or charming. He was loud and belligerent, to be honest, but the nurses and nursemaids, Sadie aside, liked the way he always cursed at them in German. (laughs) While Sadie certainly didn't develop a crush on Carl during his stay at her place of employment, he did leave an impression, so she recognized him instantly when she ran into him at a baseball game a few months later. And again, one fateful afternoon when she and Dr. Labarge made a house call, to the home of Carl's brother Bill and his wife Loretta. The young couple was being treated for venereal disease. (laughs) Carl stopped by for a visit while Sadie and the doctor were there checking in on their patients one day, and it was under this very romantic setting that Carl decided he had to have Sadie, and he asked her out on a date. Just like when Carl had been a patient at her hospital, Sadie was not interested at all. But his sister-in-law Loretta spoke so highly of him that eventually Sadie was like, all right, maybe, I guess. Carl pursued Sadie relentlessly. The less interested she seemed, the crueler she was to him, the more he wanted her. He made it a point to always be at his brother's place when Sadie and the doctor stopped by for a house call. And the real weird part, as infatuated as Carl was with Sadie, 
She was picking up on some super sus vibes between Carl and his sister-in-law, and she became convinced that they were having an affair. Loretta confirmed as much one day when she confided in Sadie, We've been having an affair, and if anything ever happens to Bill, we're going to marry. Which meant that Carl probably needed to be treated for the same VD as Bill and Loretta. Knowing all of this, Sadie still agreed to go out on a date with Carl. Not because she had feelings for him or was attracted to him, but simply because he wore her down. Even after a handful of dates, Sadie still wasn't really feeling it. Loretta, who was hella jealous, encouraged Sadie to break up with Carl after encouraging her to date him in the first place, saying, He's probably diseased. Yeah, bitch, you think? Aside from that, he was weird, mean, a drunkard, and not a trustworthy dude. He was sleeping with his brother's wife. When Sadie tried to break things off, Carl did several things all at once. He proposed marriage, threatened to kill himself if Sadie said no, and threatened to kill Sadie if she left him. The only person besides loser Loretta that Sadie had to confide in was her boss, Dr. Labarge, who encouraged her to accept Carl's proposal. He's good people, if a little strange, he told Sadie. She pointed out that Carl was a drunkard with a temper who never even finished high school, wasn't going anywhere in life, was very controlling, and was sure to treat her very badly once they were married. And Dr. Labarge just said, ah, you're too hard on him. <laughs> and so, on the agreement that Carl would stop drinking, Sadie accepted the red flaggiest proposal I have ever heard of in my life. And that, friends, is where today's story really begins. Before we get into it, though, I do need to thank today's sponsor. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. My days are so busy that I barely have time to breathe, let alone think. But as soon as I lay my head down at night, those thoughts just start racing. And I often think to myself, I really need to talk to someone about all of this. Therapy gives you a wonderful opportunity to do that so that you can break those negative thought cycles and find some mental and emotional peace. When I find myself struggling, it's so comforting to know that help is always just a click away. We all know anxiety is a liar, but knowing it and being able to control it are two very different things. It's been so helpful to have tools at the ready to combat those negative feelings and emotions. And when those don't work, I've got someone to talk things through with and come up with a new game plan. If you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHealth a try. It's completely online and is designed to fit your busy schedule. All you have to do is fill out a short questionnaire and you'll be matched with a licensed therapist. It's so important to find the right therapist for you, so you can always switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash violentends today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash violent ends. And be sure to tell them I sent you. 
In August of 1926, when Sadie was 27 and Carl was 38, Sadie bought a dress, obtained a marriage license, and agreed to marry the man of her nightmares, but not before her boss, Dr. Labarge, gave Carl a physical exam and a blood test to determine if he was, in fact, diseased like his scorned lover of a sister-in-law claimed. Sadie almost hoped the test came back positive for something. It would give her an out. Entering into a union that wasn't eugenically sound was frowned upon. But Carl got a clean bill of health, and before the summer of 1926 came to a close, Sadie Lyon became Sadie Morlock. If Sadie thought, and it really doesn't sound like she did think this, that marrying Carl was a good idea, the horror that unfolded on their wedding night removed all doubt that she had made the biggest mistake of her entire life. The two were married by a parson near their home in Michigan, then drove to Sadie's parents' house in Ohio, where the family had prepared a room for them. Now that Sadie was a married woman, her father graciously undisowned her. As they prepared for the inaugural coitus, Sadie later said that Carl was pacing the room with the nervous energy of a rabid dog. He was very rough with her. There was no tenderness or passion. And then right before he climaxed, he bit her face. Bit her face so hard that she needed stitches. Carl then passed out, like literally fell unconscious immediately afterward. Terrified and bleeding from her fucking face, Sadie shook her unconscious husband and asked him what kind of spell he was having. Carl moaned and started snapping his teeth like he was going to bite her again, so Sadie left him alone. Sadie was too ashamed to tell her family what had happened, so after the rest of the family left for a picnic, Carl drove Sadie to the town doctor where her wound was cleaned and stitched up. The focus then turned to Carl and what could have possibly caused this episode that he barely remembered. Sadie optimistically suspected epilepsy. The doctor did not agree. Yeah, no girl, that ain't it. When Sadie's family saw her bandaged face, they did not believe her story that it was just a bad allergic reaction to some sort of bug bite. As they continued to press for the truth, Carl could tell that Sadie was close to coming clean, and then it would be all over for him. So he feigned sickness and insisted that they return to his mother's home in Michigan. They left later that day, and Sadie lost her last chance to break free from the man who would control her life until her dying day. The only thing worse than living with Carl Morlock was living with him and his mother, which Sadie did not want to do. So she convinced Carl to move to Lansing, where they rented an upstairs apartment and she got a job as a private nurse, then at St. Lawrence Hospital as a medical assistant. Carl got a job at one of the auto assembly factories, but was known to be a lazy, unreliable employee and soon lost his job. The first of many. He worked as a janitor and for Atlas Drop Forge and kind of here and there and everywhere, always quitting or getting fired before he was even settled in somewhere. 
he relied on Sadie to provide a steady income with her unofficial nursing gigs. Carl was vehemently opposed to the idea of having children, while Sadie, she wasn't opposed to having them. She just didn't want to have them with Carl. He was an unintelligent, unreliable, unfaithful, brutish, abusive alcoholic that she hadn't even wanted to marry in the first place. And his weird bedroom behavior continued well beyond their wedding night. Sadie became convinced that she was married to a sort of werewolf because every month between the 17th and 20th of the month, Carl turned into a rabid dog in the bedroom just between those few days. Sadie's solution to this was to shield her face with a pillow so that he could not bite and scar her again. I just... Listen, we've done a lot of really weird stories on this show, but this one, I just cannot wrap my head around this. So it wasn't that Sadie didn't want to divorce Carl. She definitely did. But they were congregants of the Emanuel First Lutheran Church in Lansing, a devoutly evangelical branch of the Christian faith that viewed insubordinate women as one of the world's greatest evils. I think we need to put that on a t-shirt. Insubordinate women are the world's greatest evil. It's happening. Let's do it, guys. In August of 1929, when Carl was 41 and Sadie was 30, the happy couple celebrated their third wedding anniversary. Carl forgot to get Sadie flowers because he forgot it was their anniversary altogether, which is completely in line with his character. In response to what was likely a very insincere apology, Sadie told him that he could make it up to her by giving her a baby. This was a complete and abrupt change of heart, one that came about because Sadie was just super fucking sad and lonely. Her husband was absolute garbage. Her family was in another state. She wasn't allowed to socialize or have friends. She needed someone to love and someone to love her back. Her own little baby was the perfect solution. But like most everything else in Sadie's life, This did not go as planned. That night, for the first time in their marriage, Carl and Sadie had sex without protection. And according to Sadie, the very next morning, she knew she was pregnant. She could feel the magic. Sounds fake, but she wasn't wrong. When she missed her period a few weeks later, she went to see Dr. Howard Haynes, who is our second least favorite man in this story. Dr. Haynes confirmed that Sadie was, in fact, pregnant, but dismissed her concerns that she might be pregnant with twins. She felt like something was just not quite right. Her symptoms were much more severe than any pregnant woman she'd known or treated, but the doctor discounted this by saying, You're a white woman, aren't you? Because apparently it was a commonly held belief back in the 20s that primarily women of color gave birth to multiples not white women. That's stupid and fucking weird and also untrue. Sadie, always one to ignore the biggest and brightest red flags, continued to see Dr. Haynes. By nine weeks, Sadie was so miserable that Dr. Haynes conceded, fine, maybe you are having twins, but you're still just being way too dramatic about it. 
he put her on bed rest, but when she continued to complain, he offered to give her a secret abortion if she couldn't handle being pregnant. Sadie refused. She continued to deteriorate throughout her pregnancy with a husband who was rarely home and a doctor who was literally the worst until late spring of 1930 when she was about eight months along and began experiencing labor pains. She phoned Dr. Haynes who informed her that it was too early for her to be in labor and she was too sympathetic with herself. But just before midnight on May 18, 1930, 31-year-old Sadie insisted it was time and ordered her 41-year-old garbage husband, Carl, to drive her to Edward W. Sparrow Hospital, where history, literally Guinness Book of World Records history, would soon be made, unbeknownst to anyone at the time. Dr. Haynes met the Morlocks at the hospital, where Sadie unleashed all of the fear and frustration she'd kept pent up for the last nine months. She berated her doctor for neglecting her throughout her pregnancy, and he essentially told her to shut up. Carl sat in the waiting room, useless as ever, and three hours later, on May 19th, Dr. Haynes popped in to congratulate Carl on the successful birth of his twin daughters. It was twins after all, wouldn't you know it? A few minutes later, Dr. Haynes returned with a shocking update. It wasn't twins. It was triplets. All girls. Before Carl could even begin to wrap his head around this news, Dr. Haynes returned again. He told Carl, You've got four of them, and none of them came up through the elevator or fire escape. (laughs) Four babies. Four daughters. While naturally conceived quadruplets were and still are incredibly rare, just in general, genetic testing would later confirm that the Morlock quadruplets were the first identical quadruplets in the world, meaning that they all came from one egg that split into four embryos. And nobody had any idea. What's crazier still is that Helen carried them almost full term. Even twins today rarely make it to full term. But Sadie, somehow in 1930 with abhorrent medical care from a narcissistic doctor, carried four babies almost full term. And yet Dr. Haynes had no idea. I get ultrasounds weren't a thing yet. But he couldn't tell a belly with one baby in it from a belly with four babies in it. I would say take away his medical license, but that had already been done unbeknownst to Sadie when he got caught giving hush-hush abortions like the one he'd offered her. Carl's somehow equally predictable and shocking response when Dr. Haynes told him the good news was, what will they think my wife is, a bitch dog? And then he ran away crying literally ran down the hallway at Sparrow Hospital crying like a little bitch dog. Dr. Haynes tried to console him, promising Carl that these babies would be his meal ticket. Soon, the Morlock name would be famous. And he wasn't wrong. But Sadie didn't have time to worry about any of that. Just as she'd been on her own during her miserable pregnancy with four fucking babies, during which she was gaslit, ignored, and neglected, 
Sadie was now on her own to figure out how to parent four babies, and Carl told her as much. You figure it out. You you make this work because I'm I'm not interested. He wasn't leaving, but he wasn't he wasn't staying. Uh, Sadie's first concern was getting her daughters to nurse. They weren't premature, but they were tiny, all between three and four pounds. And it became clear pretty quickly that breastfeeding wasn't going to work for the Morlock quads and they would have to be tube fed. Sadie's concern then turned to her own health. Her limbs were swelling and she was worried she was hemorrhaging. Remember, while she didn't technically graduate from nursing school, Sadie had been a private nurse and medical assistant for years. And I'm sure it was very annoying for Dr. Know-It-All Haynes to have a patient who actually knew what she was talking about and could question and contradict him. So rather than take any of Sadie's concerns seriously, like ever, he did everything he could to discount and discredit her fears. When it was discovered that Sadie was, in fact, hemorrhaging, Dr. Haynes blamed it on her. He said she caused it to happen by the power of suggestion. So she didn't accurately diagnose her own internal bleeding as a medical professional. She caused it by vocalizing the idea that it might be happening and then it happened. <laughs> I hate this guy. I, Dr. Haynes, I hope you can hear me from the great beyond because I want you to know how much I hate you. Inside Sparrow Hospital, Sadie was busy trying to keep herself and her four newborn daughters alive. Dr. Haynes was busy gaslighting her and being the absolute worst. And Carl was busy crying, making himself out to be a victim, and trying to earn the sympathy of the pretty young nursing staff. He was always on the hunt for a new mistress, no matter how many he already had. Outwardly, though, the city of Lansing, and soon the world, was marveling over the miracle that had just occurred at Lansing's biggest and best hospital. When Sadie told a nurse she was planning to name the girls Jean, Jane, June, and Joan, the nurse informed her that an idea had been put forth to hold a naming contest in the Lansing State Journal, and she encouraged Sadie to go along with it. So even the simplest of new mom pleasures, picking out a name for your new little baby, was taken away from Sadie. Over 6,000 naming suggestions were sent into the Lansing State Journal for a chance at bragging rights and a $10 prize, which in today's money would be close to $200. The winning entry, coincidentally, came from the young daughter of our least favorite physician, Dr. Haynes. She, a 10-year-old, proposed names that represented the establishment in which the famous babies were born, Edward W. Sparrow Hospital, so that they would always be connected. Edna for the E, Edward, Wilma for the W, Sarah for S for Sparrow, and Helen for H, the hospital. So Edna, Wilma, Sarah, Helen, Edward W. Sparrow Hospital. What a clever idea for a 10-year-old girl to come up with. No chance at all that it actually came from her narcissistic father who worked at said hospital and delivered the babies. The girls were given middle names that started with A, 
B, C, and D to signify their birth order, and because for several days those were their names, Baby A, Baby B, Baby C, and Baby D. It wasn't just naming the babies that the city of Lansing took ownership of. It was everything. Sadie and Carl were still living in that one-bedroom upstairs apartment located at 1305 Osborne on the city's west side. That was not going to work for A, a family of six, or two, a family with four newborns. So the Lansing City Council stepped in at the request of the mayor and approved to lease a house to the Morlocks rent-free for a year. That house, which has long since been torn down, was located at 1023 East Saginaw Street on the east side of the city. Every business in town was eager to connect their name to the Morlock family. They opened savings accounts for the girls, supplied their milk and diapers and clothes and bonnets. Furniture companies built them custom bassinets and cribs and strollers. But all of this generosity came at a price. 25 cents, to be exact. That's what people paid in admission to enter the Morlock home and just watch them. Just watch them. In today's money, that would be $5 a pop. The Morlock house became a sideshow attraction, home to the most unique children in the world. The odds of their existence, according to experts, was 1 in 20 million. But people weren't content to just watch the Morlocks go about their day. They'd paid good money for a show. They wanted to hold the girls. They wanted Sadie to feed them, even when it wasn't feeding time, to wake them if they were sleeping, to bathe them even if their hair was still wet from their last bath, to change their diapers even if their diapers were clean. I say this with all the love in my heart as someone who was born and raised in Lansing. Lansing? You're fucking weird. Meanwhile, poor Sadie was doing her best to adjust to life with four newborns, a needy, shitty husband, and to take care of her own physical and mental health, which were not doing well. She needed help. Why she thought the person who would be best suited to help her was her awful mother-in-law, I have no idea. Catherine Morlock, who again was unnaturally attached to Carl, her youngest of nine children, thought her granddaughters were an abomination. Four babies? It was unnatural. She blamed Sadie, as did Carl, The only way a woman could become pregnant with four babies at the same time was by having sex with four different men during the same time frame, because that makes sense. The first time Catherine saw the babies that the rest of the world called a miracle, she said, It's all very terrible. It'd be best for them to die. And this was the woman that Sadie thought would be her saving grace. Shockingly, she was not. Bringing Catherine into the home was tantamount to having another child. She treated Sadie like a servant, like she was there for Sadie to take care of her, not for her to help with the babies that she so loathed. When she didn't get her way, she would fake seizures. The more time Sadie spent with her wicked mother-in-law, the more she began to see where many of Carl's issues came from, whether they were inherited or learned. 
Catherine made life at the Morlock home so miserable that Sadie and Carl eventually shipped her off to live with one of Carl's brothers. But Sadie still needed help, right? Four babies. So she started hiring young local girls to help out around the house, but none ever lasted long because Carl kept having affairs with them. He got one 19-year-old pregnant and paid $900 for her abortion. Another young girl he got pregnant carried her baby to term, but the baby did not survive delivery. Sadie didn't seem to care too much about her husband's affairs beyond the trouble they caused and the money that they cost. And then before long, Sadie began using Carl's affairs to her advantage. When she found out that the quadruplets pediatrician, Dr. French, had taken Carl out on the town with a group of nurses he was having affairs with, Sadie used this information to blackmail the doctor into providing free health care for the girls until they turned 12. And I love that for her, honestly. She similarly blackmailed the awful Dr. Haynes into providing her with free health care after finding him doing the deed with a nurse in an exam room while he was supposed to be in an appointment with Sadie. So she was there for an appointment. He didn't show up. He didn't come into the room. He was late. So she went looking for him and found him fucking a nurse in another room. <laughs> what was going on in Lansing in the 1930s? My goodness. Her entire life, Sadie had been surrounded by awful men who treated her terribly and used and manipulated her. But eventually, she learned how to manipulate them right back. I just wish she'd done more to protect her little girls from those same men. But we'll get to that in a bit. In 1931, just after the girl's first birthday, an unemployed and grossly unqualified Carl ran for city constable and won by a landslide. What's a constable? I don't fucking know. It's kind of like an officer, right? I know he got a badge. He wasn't like a police officer, but he did have a badge and he was an official and he did something. I don't know what though. He didn't win because people believed in him or even liked him. He won because he put pictures of his daughters on his campaign posters and everybody loved the little Morlock girls. One city official remarked that he could have run for senator and won on his girl's reputation alone. That's how much the city of Lansing loved those little girls. And this was no fluke. Carl was up for re-election over a dozen times over the next three decades, and he won every single time. Outwardly, the Morlock family was the picture of the American dream. Daddy was an elected official. Mama sewed the girls matching dresses and ribbons and curled their hair and took them to dance classes and singing lessons. Edna, Wilma, Sarah, and Helen were Lansing's little sweethearts, and the media, both local and national, was happy to continue to portray them that way. In city officials, Carl's co-workers, they had to know the truth, or at the very least, that the happy family ruse was just that. But it wouldn't be until many decades later, when the girls were free of their monster and able to use their own voices, that the truth would come out. Here is where I want to pause to tell you that the majority of the information I'm using for this episode is from the book Girls and Their Monsters by Audrey Claire Farley. 
The book just came out in June. I sell it at Dead Time Stories, of course, and it's important. I won't lie to you, the book is heavy, not just in content related to the Morlocks, but in talking about social issues and psychology and genetics. Like, it is a lot, but it's so good, and if you're from Lansing, it's such an important part of history. It even has some cross-references to other cases that have been covered on the podcast, especially one really interesting parallel that I think is supposed to be a surprise, but if you are a regular consumer of my content, it won't surprise you at all. The book talks at length about the lack of government involvement in what was clearly a very bad situation. Carl and Sadie were poor and ill-equipped to take care of one baby, let alone four at once. Carl was, again, an abusive alcoholic Sadie became a nervous wreck in ways that shaped the girls' lives, which we'll talk more about in a bit. Carl, a married man in his 40s, ran around with teenage girls, getting them pregnant. There was even talk that he'd killed a man. Who? I don't know. I couldn't find any articles about it because, shockingly, the state journal wouldn't dare print anything negative about the Morlocks. Not until the 90s, anyway. But according to Sadie, Carl was questioned and at one time the main suspect in the murder of his sister-in-law Loretta's second husband, who drowned under suspicious circumstances. You remember Loretta, right? Bill's wife, the one responsible for Carl and Sadie's meet-cute, the one Carl was having an affair with while she was being treated for VD by Sadie. I mean. Have you ever heard a sweeter love story than that? It's unclear how long Carl and Loretta carried on their affair, but Sadie didn't think it ever really ended. Carl convinced his brother Bill to divorce Loretta, which he considered a great triumph, but then Loretta quickly remarried. The day that her second husband drowned, Carl stayed out late, wouldn't tell Sadie where he'd been, and then behaved oddly for several days. Eventually, authorities came knocking, although Sadie wasn't privy to the specifics of their conversation with Carl. He was never arrested, but Sadie insisted that Carl confessed to the killing more than once and even began to brag about it as the years went on. So, poverty, abuse, mental illness, murder, alcoholism, and yet, as long as the girls put on their matching dresses and big smiles and got up and sang and danced at community events, like literally sang and danced, they were child performers and they toured the country doing shows for a while, nobody cared or questioned what went on behind closed doors, which is in stark contrast to the way another Lansing family was treated. The same year Carl won his first election for city constable, a man named Earl Little was killed on Lansing's east side. I'm not going to bury the lead here like the book did because if you ever listen to anything I say, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Earl Little was Malcolm X's father. He was murdered in Lansing by white supremacists in 1931, but authorities at the time ruled it an accident, while the insurance company ruled it suicide so they wouldn't have to pay out on his policy. Now, in the interest of full transparency, Earl Little was not unlike Carl Morlock in a lot of ways. He was an abusive alcoholic who was terrible to his wife and children. They even almost had the same name, Earl, right? One with an E, one with a C. 
Um, Both families were poor and had a lot of kids. And then in 1931, the city of Lansing killed one and elected the other to public office. After Earl Little's death, his wife relied on public assistance to take care of her children, the same way the Morlocks had been doing since before they even took the girls home from the hospital. While Carl wasn't dead, yet, he was very much an absent father and husband. While the city was all too happy to give the Morlocks whatever resources they need, parade them across the front of the Lansing State Journal, and trot them out at public events— they otherwise left them to their own devices, despite clear warning signs, like the fact that when they were infants, Carl would knock the girls' heads together to get them to stop crying. But the little family? Because Louise got assistance from the state after we killed her husband, social services was all up in her shit all the time. After Earl's death, she entered into a relationship with a man who got her pregnant and then abandoned her. When she had a hard time with that, the state decided that she needed to be institutionalized. Her children were taken from her, split up, and put into foster care. She was sent to an asylum in Kalamazoo, where she spent decades. But where was someone to tell Carl Morlock that he couldn't do the things he did to his daughters behind closed doors? Where was someone to take away Sadie's right to be a mother because she failed to protect her daughters from the same monsters who victimized her? Why was there such a discrepancy in the way authorities treated the Morlocks versus the Littles? I'll give you one guess. Malcolm X was not the only Michigan-made celebrity to get a mention in Girls and Their Monsters. Where the book talked about how Karl Morlock, a German immigrant, was a literal Nazi, outwardly supported the Third Reich even after World War II began and supported the eugenics movement, there is mention of one Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, a figurehead in the eugenics movement and the creator of cornflakes, if you believe his version of the story anyway. And while there's no mention of him being a Nazi or the face of the eugenics movement, even though he was both, Michigan-born Charles Lindbergh also makes a cameo in the book. The Lindbergh baby, Charles Jr., was born one month after the Morlock quadruplets in 1930. So in 1932, just as the girls were learning to walk and talk and their parents were growing wary of strangers after multiple kidnapping threats, and what it seemed to be attempts to snatch at least one, if not all, of the girls, the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped and held for ransom, although really he was dead the entire time that the ransom hoax was going on. So maybe the one and only thing that Carl and Sadie had in common was their fear that someone would snatch the girls. It certainly wasn't an irrational fear, given what had happened to the Lindbergh baby, given the fact that it was attempted at the Morlock home more than once during the height of what is now known as the Snatch Racket, which is also the name of a book I carry at Dead Time Stories. But the Morlocks allowed this fear to literally ruin their children. Building a big fence around the house? Understandable. Not letting the girls out of their sight? I mean... They were two. They needed eyes on them all the time. Are anyone else's teeth itching a little bit at the thought of trying to have to try to keep track of 
four toddlers at one time, all the time. But this fear that someone was going to take the girls became the guiding force in the Morlock home. Gone were the days of the 25-cent visits by strangers, which that part was a good thing. But the girls also weren't allowed to have visits from cousins or neighbors or, as they got older, classmates. They weren't allowed to go anywhere without their parents. They weren't allowed to socialize. They weren't allowed to have friends. Carl and Sadie's stance was that the girls had each other and they didn't need anyone else. But of course that wasn't true. And this isolation and overprotectiveness did so, so much damage that the girls never recovered from. Before we talk about the girls, I want to do two things. A, remind you that this Lansing-based story about the world's first set of identical quadruplets has elements of Malcolm X, the Kelloggs, the Lindbergh baby, and maybe even John List. That is so wild to me. And that's why anyone who's into Michigan's dark history needs to get a copy of Girls and Their Monsters, like right now. Two, I need to thank today's other sponsor, microdosing. You've heard of it, but what is it? It's what all the cool kids are doing to feel healthier and perform better in their day-to-day lives. Our show today is sponsored by Microdose Gummies. Microdose Gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. As you all know, sleep is my mortal enemy. But one gummy an hour before bed helps me slay that dragon peacefully and consistently. Like 10 out of 10 recommend. They're so good, I even give them to my kid. Relax, my kid is 24 years old. Microdose is available nationwide. To learn about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com. And use code VIOLENTENDS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show description, but again, that's microdose.com, code VIOLENTENDS. And, as always, be sure to tell them I sent you. Okay, now let's talk about the girls. Edna A., Wilma B., Sarah C., Helen D. Very early on, Edna, the eldest, was established as the leader of the group and a daddy's girl. She was Carl's favorite. And Sarah was mother's little helper, always eager to help around the house or parent her sisters. Wilma was the clown of the group. She was always playing pranks and making jokes and making people laugh. Little Helen, the youngest and smallest of the four, was always seen as the troublemaker She didn't pick up on things as quickly as her sisters. She had a harder time maintaining the perfect little porcelain doll image that was so important to her parents, and she had some behavioral issues. Wilma was eventually lumped in with Helen, and the Morlocks decided that they had two good girls and two bad girls, and then proceeded to treat their daughters accordingly for the rest of their lives. As Helen got older her behavioral problems got more serious. When she, at three years old, began obsessively mm, comforting herself, if you know what I mean, Um, it was seen as a problem that needed to be fixed 
rather than a very obvious sign that something more serious was going on. In 1935, the Morlock Quadruplets started kindergarten at Oak Park Elementary School on Lansing's east side. They did not have a good time. And we all did the school thing, right? We all know that the last thing that any kid wants in a room full of strangers is to be the different one. And here come four identical little girls, international celebrities, who have never been allowed to socialize and who require constant supervision to make sure some weirdo isn't trying to fucking snatch them, which was attempted at the school a couple times, by the way. So, yeah, school was rough. The girls were bullied and picked on and singled out and ostracized and all of the bad things. Meanwhile, local newspapers touted the girls' school days as this wonderful adventure, turning a blind eye to the ugly parts, just like they did when it came to the girls' home lives. In first grade, the girls were put into separate classes, which was a good thing for Edna and Sarah, who got to kind of branch out on their own and find a little bit of independence, but it only made things worse for Helen and Wilma, who needed their sister's guidance. When the girls were in second grade, Sadie accused the school janitor of molesting Helen, which he was absolutely doing. He even went back to college and got a teaching degree so that he could be a teacher at Helen's high school, where the abuse picked up again when she was a teenager. During their early school years, the girls continued to travel the country and perform. Their mother made them matching costumes, while their father drove drunk to their shows with the whole family in the car. When the girls were seven, agents began suggesting that Sadie take the girls out to Hollywood. She considered it, but then decided to put an end to their performing altogether. They were getting too old, too independent. The more people they were around, the more likely someone was to find out what was going on at home, and Sadie couldn't have that. Of all of the things I know about Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, this is the one I least wanted to ever discuss again, but here we are just the same. The man was a masturbation Nazi. To him, it led to health ailments and mental illness and all sorts of other problems. He went to great lengths to discourage young people from engaging in the habit from chastity belts to mutilation and so many other horrific things in between. Sadie Morlock must have read his book because when she caught 11-year-old Helen self-soothing one night, she poured carbolic acid on her daughter's sensitive bits in front of the other girls to put a stop to the habit. Helen was left with painful chemical burns, and she and her sisters were scarred for life, but it didn't even work long-term. By the time they were 12, Helen and Wilma were both frequently in trouble for self-soothing. I really, I fucking hate that term, but I hate all of the alternatives more. And I really hate that we have to talk about this at all, especially about little girls. But it's so important to this story. So just hold your breaths and we'll get through this part as quickly as we can. Sadie and Carl tried to manage the problem at home. The girls were not only engaging in this nasty habit, but also wetting the bed frequently. Again, these were clear signs that something else was going on, but the girls' parents weren't interested in any of that. 
They whipped the girls, denied them any sort of privacy, fucking waterboarded them. They would hold their heads underwater in the wash basin and count to 10. But none of that worked either. So Sadie took her preteen daughters to Dr. Haynes, the same monster who'd been so horrible to her during her pregnancy. He gave them a salve to apply and insisted that the girls douche with ice-cold water every night before bed. When that didn't work either, Carl and Sadie had Helen and Wilma surgically circumcised by the man who delivered them. I'm not going to get into the details, but if you want to know what that means, look up a female circumcision and it's fucking horrible. This doctor loathed them so much that both girls came out of surgery black and blue on parts of their bodies that had no cause to even be touched during the surgery. Both girls spent several painful days in the hospital following their surgical mutilation and had a long road to recovery. When they did finally get to go home, Dr. Haynes instructed Carl and Sadie to tie their hands to their bedposts at night and dose them with sedatives to keep them calm for at least the next month. These girls were 12 years old. Shortly after this ghastly procedure on two little girls he delivered, named, and also offered to abort when their mother was several months pregnant with them, Dr. Haynes took a job as a physician and preacher on Beaver Island, home of the Mormon pirate sex cult led by King James Strang, which was covered in a previous episode. There go those worlds colliding again. As the girls headed into their teen years, they all became despondent as they sank deep into the throes of depression. Carl and Sadie were so abusive to Helen specifically at this point that she was almost like a zombie, barely speaking, falling further and further behind in school. Helen's sisters, who'd once been so embarrassed by her behavior that they tried to distance themselves from her at school, began defending and protecting her but it was too late for Helen to be saved. The girls entered Pattengill Junior High School in 1943. By then, they'd been mutilated, beaten, emotionally abused, neglected, traumatized. They were tired. There would be no more behavioral issues. They were quiet, obedient, heads down. They still weren't allowed to socialize or have friends. They certainly couldn't date. The initial age Carl deemed acceptable for the girls to begin dating was 40. Four, zero. He later changed the deadline to never. He and Sadie tried to put the fear of God into the girls. Just one dalliance with a boy could lead to pregnancy, which would ruin their lives. Carl expected his daughters to remain pure. Carl, the man who would fuck anyone who would let him, the younger the better, got other women pregnant and paid for their abortions with his daughter's earnings, who frequently took leaves of absence from work for blood infections, which were really VD. The older the girls got, the more possessive, controlling, and jealous Carl became. As the girls raced toward adulthood and a life free of the parents who suffocated them, Carl and Sadie went to great lengths to continue to infantilize their daughters. 
but Carl also saw that they were becoming women. And I think we all know where this is going. Maybe this is where it had been all along. The reason the girls wet their beds well into adolescence and had overactive sex drives even as young children and all suffered from odd behavioral issues. Carl Morlock, Lansing City Constable for decades and decades, was molesting his famous daughters. After middle school, the girls went to Eastern High School. Edna continued to excel. Sarah did her best to keep up. Wilma was kind of middle of the road, but poor Helen was falling further and further behind. Halfway through their junior years, Sadie disenrolled Helen against the advice of every school official and doctor involved in the girls' care. Helen's sisters were so upset with their parents for pulling Helen out of school simply to protect their carefully curated image that they began to rebel. Edna, always her father's favorite, always the golden child, refused to go along with her parents' lie that Helen was pulled for medical reasons. Sarah also wouldn't play the game. And poor Wilma cried every day, begging to quit school so she could stay home with her best friend. Helen's condition continued to deteriorate. She began suffering from nightmares so vivid they were more like delusions, walking in her sleep, having violent tantrums, self-harming. Her parents had no choice but to keep her locked up in the house so that others wouldn't see these behaviors. That same year, the Lansing State Journal named Sadie Morlock Mother of the Year. Throughout all of this horror, none of which was talked about, but some of which was well-known, some of which was whispered about, and some just too terrible to even mention— the local media continued to do feel-good pieces on how wonderful the Morlocks were doing at least a couple times a year. By the spring of 1949, as her sisters prepared for their high school graduation, Helen Morlock was, for the most part, catatonic. After high school, the Morlock quads were eager to make their own lives, but Carl worked overtime to stop them with threats and manipulation. And of course it worked. Edna was the first to get a job as a stenographer at City Hall, where Carl worked. She was also the first to lose her mind. After an elevator operator in her building tried to rape her in the middle of a workday, and her father refused to believe her because the operator was a good guy, Edna began to suffer from uncontrollable crying spells and physical ailments with no source that a doctor could find. In April of 1951, just before her 21st birthday, Edna took a leave of absence from her job. Two months later, she resigned. Her condition got so bad, hallucinating, having fits, walking and talking in her sleep, that Helen, Helen, became Edna's caretaker. So Helen was in the worst shape, Edna had always been in the best shape, and now Edna was in such a state that Helen was the one taking care of her. At the start of 1952, Edna was institutionalized in Ann Arbor and diagnosed with acute schizophrenia. She was treated with convulsive electroshock therapy and injections to induce seizures. Wilma was the second to go mad. Shortly after taking a secretarial position, she began vomiting uncontrollably at work. She was anxious all the time, couldn't eat, and cried almost constantly. 
And then, just like her sister, she was attacked by a male coworker during the middle of the day, not in an elevator, but in a private bathroom. This knocked whatever sanity Wilma was carefully clinging to right out of her grasp. She also began hallucinating and self-harming. It got so bad, she couldn't even feed herself. She would just sit there and drool as her sisters tried to spoon-feed her. In March of 1953, just before her 23rd birthday, Wilma was hospitalized and diagnosed with acute schizophrenia, just like Edna. She underwent 16 rounds of electroshock therapy over the course of several weeks before being sent back home. Next was Sarah. She'd gotten a job as a secretary at a law firm. It was high-pressure, demanding work, but she took pride in it. She had friends, made her own money, even dated a bit behind Carl's back. The day a client cornered, threatened, and tried to sexually assault her was the day that she began to lose her mind. PTSD took hold of her, and she was fearful and frantic all the time. Her mother sedated her to help her sleep, but it, it didn't help. Sarah took a leave of absence from her job to seek psychiatric care and was diagnosed with schizophrenia, just like her sisters before her. Unlike her sisters, though, she was not hospitalized as her case was not deemed acute. She was treated with outpatient therapy. In December of 1954... Helen, the first to be declared a problem by her parents, was the last to be declared schizophrenic. By then, three of the four sisters had attempted suicide at least once. The Morlock quadruplets came into this world against all odds, setting a world record as the first identical quadruplets ever born. One in 20 million odds. 24 years later, they beat much larger odds. The odds of four identical siblings being diagnosed with schizophrenia were 1 in 1.5 billion, with a B. You would think that the part of the story where the girls were whisked off to some private experimental institution out of state would be the scary part. But for the Morlock sisters, who'd lived a life of pure horror behind a facade of wholesome American values— the National Institute of Mental Health in Bethesda, Maryland, was a welcome reprieve. They spent three years there, from 1955 to 1958. They were not experimented on or given electroshock therapy or hard drugs. They were not abused or molested or manipulated. They were treated with kindness by doctors who truly wanted to get to the root cause of their illness. Was their condition caused by nature, nurture, or a combination of both. They were treated with psychotherapy and occupational therapy. Treated, not punished, not tortured. Treated for the first time in their lives. I would love to be able to tell you that the girls all healed their inner wounds and went on to live fabulous, happy lives. But we live in the real world, and that's not how things work. Sarah the least ill of the bunch, was released to a halfway house in early 1957. She got a job working at the Walter Reed Military Hospital in D.C., which was called something else back then. She started looking for her own apartment and began taking driving lessons. And then on August 9, 1957, the best thing that could have happened to the girls happened. Their father, their monster, 
Carl Morlach, died at the age of 68 from cirrhosis of the liver. For the first time in over two years, the Morlach quadruplets returned to Lansing. Right after their father's funeral, however, they all went back to the East Coast, Sarah to the halfway house in D.C., and the others to NIMH. In 1958, Sadie pulled Edna, Wilma, and Helen from the Institute and brought them back to Michigan as she wanted them closer to home. The three were admitted to Northville State Hospital in Detroit. Edna was the first to be released. She moved back into the family home in Lansing with her mother, who'd taken in boarders for income. Wilma stayed in the Detroit area, eventually moving into a halfway house and enrolling in beauty school. Helen, the last to be diagnosed, was the last to be released from the asylum. After her father's death, Sarah moved into a YWCA home in Washington, D.C., She took a more low-pressure job than the one she'd had at Walter Reed, and she began attending Luther Place Memorial Lutheran Church. It was there that she met her future husband, George Cotton. George was in the Air Force, tall, handsome, and charming. The two hit it off immediately, and in October of 1959, when Sarah was 29, George proposed. Sarah wanted to want to marry George, but she didn't. His charm had long ago worn off, and he drank too much, was careless with money, was selfish. She wanted to take him home to Lansing to meet her family, but he refused to go, saying he was only marrying her. Why would he want to meet the rest of them? After months of back and forth, Sarah gave in to pressure and agreed to marry George, much like her mother had done when she agreed to marry Carl despite her misgivings, and we all saw how that turned out. And this wouldn't be the only way in which history would repeat itself, sadly. Like many a military family, Sarah and George spent much of their first years of marriage apart. When he deployed to Saudi Arabia shortly after their wedding, she spent some time with his family in Ohio before deciding that she hated them and going back home to Lansing. After his deployment, George was stationed in England, where Sarah joined him. It was there that she spent some of her happiest years, sightseeing and exploring. Confined for the first 24 years of her life to her parents' home, the world was now big and beautiful and full of possibility. I'm like, I just really wish I could stop here so this can end on a somewhat happy note, but we've got to see it through to the end. We've come this far, right? On December 8th, 1963, when she was 33 years old, Sarah gave birth to her first child, a son she named William, who was born while the Cottons were still stationed in England. When baby William was barely a month old, the Cottons returned stateside for George's new assignment in Grand Forks, North Dakota. One day, back in Lansing, Sadie received a letter from George with a photograph of Sarah holding baby William. One look at the photo, and Sadie could tell that her daughter was not well. She looked so unwell, in fact, that Sadie worried she was unfit to care for her child and made arrangements for Sarah and William to come back to Lansing and stay with her for a while. One could argue that Sadie was also unfit to be raising children, but potato, potato. At this point, Edna was still at home and having a weird affair with some old married neighbor guy, and Wilma had just been released from the halfway house, so 
For the first time in going on a decade, most of the Morlock family would be back together under one roof. While Helen was still institutionalized, there was a new addition, little William. Once Sarah was back home, she confided in her mother that her husband was a selfish alcoholic who spent all their money on booze and gambling. George happily left his little family behind and returned to North Dakota before deploying to Taiwan and then Japan. Sarah and William stayed at the Morlock home in Lansing for a few years, only joining George at his duty station once he was assigned to Japan. In August of 1969, when Sarah was 39, she gave birth to her second son, David, in Japan. And while Sarah loved her boys, a happy life was not in the cards for them. Like many military families before and after them, the Cottons moved here, there, and everywhere, which is hard on anyone. When they were stationed in Louisiana, young Bill was hit by a car while riding his bike and suffered a massive head injury. He was never right after that, and even though David was six years his junior, David took on the role of big brother and protector. And Bill needed protecting. So did David, for that matter. Their father was abusive. A raging alcoholic, George spent his entire paychecks drinking at the VFW. He gave away Sarah's possessions as gifts to women he was cheating on her with, including her favorite typewriter. As a result of their difficult home life, the Cotton Boys often acted out. They once trashed a whole-ass hotel, like top to bottom. They flooded the family car with water, trying to turn it into a swimming pool. Just, just all kinds of antics. Eventually, Sarah and the boys moved back to Michigan. They stayed at the Morlock home while they looked for their own place. David would remember his grandma Sadie as a kind woman, if not incredibly overwhelmed. Helen had been released from Northville by this point, so all three of Sarah's sisters were back home, and now Sarah was there with her two young sons as well. It was during this time that David's aunts, Helen and Wilma, molested him. He never told his mother about the abuse, and they soon moved out into their own home nearby. It was from this home that David and his brother were taken by social services when they were 9 and 15. Bill was skipping school regularly, so the school officials notified the Department of Family Services. When they arrived at the Cotton Home for a welfare check, they were shocked to find the boys living like wild animals. At 9 and 15, Neither of them knew how to eat with utensils or bathe themselves. 9 and 15. They were both placed into foster care. Obviously, with Bill being 15, he only had a few years to go. Um, but David spent several years in really, really awful foster care homes having really bad experiences. Occasionally, their social worker attempted to place them back with Sarah, but it was always determined that she couldn't provide adequate care or supervision, and they always went back to foster care. Sarah and George lived apart for many years before finally officially divorcing in 1988. Like his mother and his aunts before him, David, her youngest son, attempted suicide as a teenager, and was threatened with institutionalization. If not for a social worker who truly cared about him, David would have kept trying until his attempts were successful. 
On April 8, 1983, 84-year-old Sadie Morlock died from cancer. Sarah inherited the family home, which she moved into with her eldest son, Bill, who was now a young adult. Wilma moved into a halfway house, and Edna and Helen rented an apartment together in a building that was supervised by social workers. In 1988, the same year that his parents legally divorced, just as David Cotton was aging out of the foster care system and looking to reconnect with his mother and his older brother, Sarah decided to sell the Morlock House of Horrors to a neighbor who planned to demolish it and put in a parking lot for his classic car collection. It was right around this time that Bill suffered from a tragic accident that would ultimately cost him his life. While working as a carny with a traveling carnival, Bill's finger was severed by a tractor trailer. By the time he arrived at the nearest hospital, which was two hours away, he needed a blood transfusion. He was given two quarts of HIV-infected blood. He died of complications from the AIDS virus on January 21, 1994, at the age of 30. Sarah Morlock Cotton, now 63 years old, had lost both of her parents, her husband, he wasn't dead, but he was gone, and her eldest son. But she still had her sisters. The first of the Morlock girls to leave this world was Wilma, who died on January 2nd, 2002, at the age of 71 due to complications from pneumonia. She died at Sparrow Hospital, the very place where she made history the day she was born, and the place she was so oddly named after. Helen died the following year on Halloween 2003 at the age of 73. Sarah and Edna, who started out life as best friends, then grew apart due to circumstance and physical distance and mental illness and Edna's out-of-control jealousy that Sarah was the only one who'd gotten out, gotten married, and had children, even though that all turned out very badly for her, once again became the best of friends. Edna passed away on April 10th, 2015, at the age of 84. At the time of this recording, Sarah Morlock Cotton is still living. She is 93 years old. And that, friends, is the beyond wild story of the Morlock Quads. So if anyone ever asks you if you've heard of them, the way local historian and journalist Bill Castanier asked me a few weeks back, you can now say, yes, I have. And it's one of the most fucked up things I've ever heard. Again, I cannot encourage you enough to get yourself a copy of Girls and Their Monsters by Audrey Claire Farley. I sell it at Dead Time Stories. If you're not local, you can still order it through us, kind of, sort of. Just go to the Dead Time Stories website. It's deadtimestories517.com and click on the bookshop.org link if you want a physical copy or the Libro FM link if you want the audiobook. And we will get a portion of the proceeds if you purchase it that way. Okay, that's it. That's all I got for you today. I'm back, baby, and I'm not going anywhere until the season finale in November. A new episode is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks. Fucks.